Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to be picking it up in verse 1 and uh, making our way through, uh, Lord willing, the first 18 verses of uh, chapter 10. If you've been tracking along with uh, Pastor Art, then you know uh, that the book of Hebrews uh, is about how Jesus is better, uh, better than lots of things. And uh, the danger of those to whom uh, the author of Hebrews was writing to uh, and I like how one commentator describes the author of Hebrews uh, because we're not 100% sure we know who that is. Um, in the commentary, he just refers to him as uh, the pastor writing to the Hebrews, uh, which is a good thought to think uh, rather than just somebody who's writing a random letter. Uh, but a pastor is somebody who cares uh, deeply and is uh, knowledgeable in scripture uh, and implying those scriptures to uh, his reader's life. And so uh, the pastor writing uh, this letter to the Hebrews is concerned that those who are reading the letter are going, uh, are drifting away uh, from the foundations of their faith, uh, drawing back toward uh, lesser things. And so, in an effort to com combat uh, their drift towards lesser things, uh, he keeps on presenting Jesus as being better, better than the things that they might be uh, drawn toward and drawn to. And so, uh, Hebrews chapter 10, uh, verses 1 through 18, brings a conclusion to an argument uh, and uh, that Jesus is better than that started in chapter 8. <laughs> so uh, it's been, we've been in this argument for a little bit that Jesus is better than uh, the old uh, priestly system of uh, the priest of Aaron, uh, that Jesus is according to a better priesthood, the priesthood of Melchizedek, and that Jesus represents a better covenant, a new covenant, a covenant that was promised and that Jesus offers a better sacrifice. And so we're going to be rounding that out uh, today in our examining of God's word. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? We're going to read together congregationally uh, verses 11 through 14. Uh, so Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 through 14. If you would follow along as I read it out loud. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 through 14 says, And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins but this man after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever sat down at the right hand of God from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool for by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we thank you for your love this morning. Lord, we thank you for your grace, uh, which you've had on each one of us. Lord, it says that your grace is made perfect in weakness. Lord, that your mercies were new this morning, because Lord, you know that we needed new mercies this morning. Father, we ask that as we uh, examine your word and get into your word, Lord, that we would allow your word to examine us, Lord, and that your word would get into us as well, Lord, that uh, we would change the way we think, uh, act, and behave, uh, Lord, and that our lives uh, would be sanctified, washed by the water of your word this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The title I've given uh, our message this morning, uh, I think it's up there, yep, uh, is All the Work for All Our Salvation is All Done. Um, I was trying to use as many alls as possible uh, to communicate uh, what I think 
we'll discover to be the case in Hebrews chapter 10, which is um, God has done uh, the complete work for our, our salvation. Uh, there are sometimes, uh, as a father of three little boys, that my wife will uh, purchase things uh, that she thinks are, are great and wonderful, and uh, they come in the mail from Amazon or Wayfair or wherever they're coming from, uh, and they always come in a very small box, and you're like, this big thing is going to come out of that little thing, um, and it's because it's, it includes uh, instructions. Uh, some assembly required is the phrase that they typically use, um, which I question their use of the word some sometimes, uh, because it's a lot of assembly required. Uh, our salvation is not like that. Our, our salvation comes complete. There is no assembly required. <laughs> it is 100% done uh, on arrival. It's, it's uh, ready to use. Um, and we're, we're going to see that salvation uh, compared and contrasted to uh, the sacrifices and the system that was in the first covenant, or sometimes we call it the old covenant, uh, the promise that God made to the nation of Israel. Uh, he gave them a law, and he gave them laws on how to handle the sin in their life. Uh, they should handle the sin in their life by making uh, sacrifices and offerings to the Lord, and he gave them a lot of different uh, sacrifices to do um, in the book of Leviticus, an exciting read. Uh, it starts off with those sacrifices, five different kinds of sacrifices for five different kinds of offerings of how to handle um, your life in relationship to the Lord. Uh, and it's that first uh, covenant that they were tempted to go back to, um, but they would go back from the new covenant that was made by Jesus. So notice how the author of Hebrews starts by saying what the law is and is not uh, there in verse one. He says, for the law, having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the thing of the things can never with the same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. Uh, he says three things about this law. The law that he's talking about is that old covenant. Uh, the whole uh, first half of your Bible, called the Old Testament, uh, is what he's referring to in general, but in particular, the law of Moses, uh, which outlines the rules and regulations by which they were supposed to approach God, a description of those sacrifices to which he's referring to. But he says this law, that that law, is a shadow of good things. A shadow is not uh, the substance of the thing, and that's what he says on the other side of it. it it's not the things. <laughs> the, this law is good and it's accurate, but it is not the thing that we should be after. Uh, in the same way that um, I have uh, on my phone, like if you look at my phone, the, the home screen, it has a picture of my wife and I on our last uh, date night that we went out on and just took a selfie of us. So every time I turn on my phone, I see an image of my wife. Um, if I want it to be funny, I could show you that and I'd be like, this is not my wife. This is a picture of my wife. <laughs> in, in the same way, he's pointing to the law and he's saying, this is not the thing. <laughs> it's an, a shadow of the thing. It, it, it represents the larger thing. It, it shows the reality of something else that's more important. And what they're in danger of is going from the substance to the shadow. Uh, it would be like uh, if I was missing my wife at work and I pulled out my phone to look at the picture, I'm like, oh, this picture is wonderful of my wife. And then my wife came into the, my work and I, I was like, no, I don't have time for you. I'm looking at a picture of my wife. <laughs> this doesn't make any sense. Why would you do that? 
And, and this is the argument that he's trying to make. He's like, you, you're getting distracted by the thing that's not the thing. He's like, this thing is the shadow. The thing that you're leaving is the substance from which the shadow is being cast. And what else he says about it is right there at the end of verse 1. What it's unable to do. The, the law is unable to make those who approach perfect. It's, it wasn't given for that purpose. Uh, the law cannot save you in that sense. That wasn't the purpose that the law was given for. It was given as a shadow, but it was, uh, you know, to, to shorten that whole sentence is the law can never make those who approach perfect. Uh, perfect in what it's, it means here is in the sense of being uh, complete uh, or fully accomplished or completely fulfilled. Uh, it'd be like when that box from Amazon came and then, you know, five hours later I'm done <laughs> and now it's complete. Uh, the law is like the instruction booklet, and it, that doesn't build anything. That just shows you that work needs to be done. Uh, but it would be like if the instructions came, but they were in a different language, and uh, they were for uh, what you were doing, but you had no idea or you had no way of doing it. And so the law, it's incapable of making us perfect. So what, what is the purpose of the law then? Uh, might be the question you would ask yourself. And uh, the law has a variety of purposes. Um, the first of which uh, is that it was given to us so that we would have a standard by which we would know that we're sinners. <laughs> uh, how do you know if you're bad or not? I'm like, oh, I think I'm kind of bad. Uh, that may have been you when you first got saved. And you're like, yeah, I'm kind of bad. And then as you grew in the Lord you're, you, and you got a better understanding of God's standard, you're like, no, I'm, I'm pretty bad. And then you got older in the Lord and you got a better understanding of his holiness and his righteousness. And you're like, no, I'm the worst. <laughs> that was the same progress that the Apostle Paul made in his own life. Uh, the Apostle Paul who wrote a lot of the New Testament. And he, when he first got saved, uh, writes that he is the least of all of those who got saved. Later on in his Christian life, he's like, I'm the least of the 12 apostles. Later on in his life, the very towards the end of his life, in a letter he wrote to another pastor, he says, I'm the chief sinner. Although the other sinners are just Indians, I'm their chief. <laughs> I'm the worst sinner I know, said the Apostle Paul. Now, did he get worse in his life? No. I would say he got more holy in his life as he moved along, but his perspective of himself became more accurate, right? And so the law was given for that purpose, so that we would know with certainty how and why we're sinners. That's why the law was given. In First uh, Timothy chapter 1, verse 8, uh, the law wasn't given to righteous people, Paul writes. He says it was given to sinners. <laughs> That's why. You, you don't have to give rules to people who don't break rules. Uh, if you have uh, kids, you understand this. My, my oldest is very interested in all of the rules and keeping all of the rules and will tell me when anybody has broken any of the rules. <laughs> Firstborns. My second one is like, well, it's negotiable. <laughs> and the third one is like, those apply to you guys, but not to me. <laughs> right? Um, Rules are for those who are unruly, is what Paul says. But the law was given to each one of us so that we would know exactly how unruly we've been. The purpose of the law was to make us conscious of our sinfulness. Uh, and that's the lawful use of the law, according to uh, 1 Timothy. There's an unlawful use of the law, is what Paul was having in mind, and that is to use the law in order to make yourself appear righteous. 
The reason why Jesus uh, had issues with some people when he came, uh, not the people you would assume, the religious people, the people who followed all of the rules, <laughs> Jesus had the harshest words for. And it was because they were trying to use the, the law to present themselves as righteous. And that was not the purpose of the law. Or they were trying to use the law and, you know, okay, I've been unrighteous, but now I'm going to be righteous. I'm going to clean up my life. And now God's going to be accept me because I've done the things that the law requires in order for me to be accepted before God. And uh, the law wasn't given for that purpose either. <laughs> the other half of the reason why the law was given was so that we would be able to recognize Jesus and his obedience and perfect obedience to the Father, that only one man has ever done this. <laughs> and that's not me. <laughs> it's, not, it's not any of us. It's only Jesus. So the, the purpose of the law uh, should dictate our approach to the law. Um, sometimes the law, like in uh, James chapter 1, is described as a mirror. And when we look into a mirror, we can see uh, more accurately ourselves, right? Uh, guys, mirrors exist. <laughs> Ladies, spend less time looking in the mirror. Uh, when it comes to examining ourselves, guys can be... I, when I was single, I didn't own a mirror. Like, I had the mirrors on the wall in my bathroom, and that's the only place. <laughs> I would leave the house sometimes without ever looking at myself because I had no consciousness or care about what I, <laughs> what I, look, <laughs> what I look like or how I was presenting myself. And uh, the Bible says that the law of God is kind of like a mirror sometimes. It will show you, you, accurately. Uh, and so if we're not concerned about what, we're, what we are, we can act like single men, or sometimes we can uh, use the law where we're looking at ourselves and uh, if I'm looking at myself and I'm like, wow, I think I should probably shave. Um, the mirror will tell me if I need to do that or not. Uh, but the mirror will not shave me. <laughs> it will just tell me, hey, you need to, you need to shave. Um, and the law in the same way will tell us the truth about us, but it can't do anything for us with regard to what it's telling us, right? It, we can't be saved by knowing that we're sinners. But that is the first step. So it's bringing us to Christ is the goal. And that's what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 24, is that the purpose of the law was like a, a schoolmaster or a tutor. Like if you're not getting something, you go and get a tutor, and that tutor helps you get the thing that you need to get. And the law was a tutor. <laughs> it's helping you understand you need Jesus. That was the purpose of the law. And so that's what uh, the author of Hebrews, the pastor here, is saying. Is He's saying... The purpose of the law can never make you perfect. Uh, perfect, And if you're trying to go back to that, to be made perfect, you're missing the point of the law. And even in the actions, he, he describes verses 2 and 3 that the worshiper is conscious of their sins by the, date, by the annual reminder of these sacrifices. Notice what he says here in verse 2 and 3. For then would they not have ceased to be offered. For the worshiper, once purified would have no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a, notice, reminder of sin, notice, every year. And so he's saying if it was possible, if there, if there could be a law that was given, Christ wouldn't need to come, first of all. But if it was possible that these sacrifices could take away your sins forever, then you would only need one of those. But they're offered every year. And every year, you're reminded, hey, you're a sinner. Every year, you're reminded, hey, you're a sinner. It, it would be uh, similar uh, if you had credit card debt, and every month, you get a reminder, hey, you're still in debt. 
you pay that monthly whatever. Next month rolls around, you may have forgotten, hey, you're in debt. And this is what he's saying. is like, if you were debt-free, you would not get bills in the mail. <laughs> there would be no reminders of it. But hey, there's a reminder every year with this system. Your debt hasn't been paid. You still owe. So his conclusion here is in verse 4. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin. That wasn't its purpose. It was uh, a patch at best. It could cover sin, but it couldn't take away sin. Uh, the payment would be made, but it would need to be made again. And so uh, the law um, couldn't do that. All of the sacrifices of the law cannot make you perfect. But this is going to be contrasted with Jesus. What the law could never do, Jesus has done. What the law could never do, Jesus has done. Notice uh, in verses 5 through 10, he's going to give us a short Bible study. Um, so at this point, I'm teaching somebody else's Bible study, and we'll follow along their Bible study, and I'll just explain what he's explaining by reading what it says. So let's, let's follow along. Uh, Hebrews 10, verse 5, Therefore, when he came into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. Previously saying, Sacrifice and offerings, burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which were offered according to the law. So his first point in his Bible study on Psalm chapter 40, uh, it's Psalm chapter 40, verses uh, eight, uh, sorry, six through eight. Um, he brings up this passage, he quotes the scripture, uh, and then he does what any good Bible student does if you're studying scripture. He actually provides for us a model of studying scripture, uh, a model for which we have a name uh, today. It's called inductive Bible study. So in inductive Bible study, you read the passage, and then you make observations of the passage, and then you interpret the passage, and then you apply the passage to your life. Uh, so he will use uh, that same method. Uh, so he's quoted the scripture there in verses 5 through 6. Uh, he recites, or sorry, 5 through 7, he recites uh, the psalm for us. And then uh, he makes observations of it in verse 8. Notice again how he says, notice. He says, previously saying. Now he's going to quote what he just quoted before, but not in the same way. He's squishing together parts that are similar. So in the psalm, it has it um, separated. He says, sacrifice and offerings you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. So it's kind of woven together, and he's going to rip those two parts in half and deal with one half first of what uh, God's attitude towards sin is. Notice what he says about God's attitude towards sin. Uh, he says, God's attitude toward sin, uh, toward sin, not sin, toward these sacrifices is that he doesn't desire them and that he has no pleasure in them. Did you see that there in verse 8? He says, previously saying, and then he quotes again those verses, uh, and he points out the fact that these burnt offerings and these sacrifices, he did not desire and he had no pleasure in them. And that would be kind of odd. You're like, well, were they the wrong sacrifices? 
And then he clarifies, he interprets what those sacrifices are um, by saying these sacrifices were offered according to the law. They weren't wrong sacrifices. They weren't the wrong time or the wrong place or in the wrong way. They were at the right place at the right time in the right way. And yet God says, that's not what I really want. Uh, I don't really want my kids to be really good at saying I'm sorry. <laughs> what I really want is them to be really good at doing the right thing at the right time in the right way instead of responding to doing the wrong thing <laughs> the wrong way at the wrong time well. And so what he's saying is, on the one hand, all of these sacrifices, what God really wants is not that. And so he interprets that uh, they're not God's desire, and even though they were according to God's law, now he's going to observe the other half of what he didn't observe in the first half. The, at the other half, it, it doesn't speak of the old covenant and the old law, but it speaks of the new covenant, and it speaks about Jesus. Notice what he says there in verse 9 in the, the way he observes it. He says, uh, then he said, behold, I have come to do your will. Uh, he takes away the first that he may establish the second. Verse 10, by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once and for all. Notice again there in verse 9 when he says, uh, how he points them back to the scripture when he says, then he said, that's him pointing them back to you know the verse that he quoted from Psalm 40. Behold, I come to do your will, O God. He interprets that to mean there in the end of verse 9, he takes away the first, that's the first covenant, the first way of approaching God, the sacrifices. He's taking that out so that he may establish the second that's how he's interpreting, behold, I have come to do your will. So when Jesus came, he wasn't coming to say, I'm sorry for sins. He was coming to live a life that was completely acceptable to God. When Jesus lived, there was never a time in his life where he had to repent. There was never a time he had to offer a sacrifice for sins because he never sinned. <laughs> and how that's expressed here is, I have come to do your will, O God which is kind of an interesting thought if you think about the only life that was ever perfectly lived wasn't to accomplish the will of himself, but to accomplish the will of another. And in the world we live in today, in the self-help books that you can read out there, if you're trying to you know, do better with your time and you're reading a time management book, they're like, well, you should determine what it is that you want to do. Uh, and that is bad advice if you're a Christian. <laughs> If you want a life that is fully pleasing to God, the question isn't, what do I want to do? What is my will in this situation? It's, what is God's will in this situation? And the closer we get to that, the closer we get to saying what Jesus was able to say without hesitation, without qualification, which is, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. When Jesus came, he didn't come to do what he wanted to do. And we even see that in his life. There was a time in his life when we know that what he wanted to do wasn't what God wanted him to do, <laughs> which is weird to think about, theologically speaking. Uh, but it was when he was about to go to the cross, he was praying, and we're given insight into his prayer. He said, Father, if there's any other way, can we do that instead? <laughs> I really don't want to do this thing that you want me to do. It wasn't, the will of God wasn't a mystery to him. Wanting to do what God wanted him to do was what he was praying about. But he concluded his prayer 
as somebody who could say this statement of, I have come to do your will, O God, would conclude the prayer. He said, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And so in our lives, when we're walking with the Lord, when we're walking like Jesus walked, uh, there's going to be times when the thing that he's asking us to do is the thing that we don't want to do. <laughs> it may even affect your prayer life. Something like this, Lord, I really don't want to do that right now. <laughs> uh, but your prayer shouldn't end there. If you're going to pray like Jesus, it's okay to say that first part. You just have to follow it up with, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. It's okay to desire at times things that God doesn't want for you. It's what you do with those desires that is meaningful. Jesus, when he had desires that were contrary to God's, laid down his will so that God's will may be done. And he did that his entire life. His whole life was full of obedience to the Lord. And that's the desire for, for myself. That's my desire as a pastor for you, is that your life would be full of obedience to God, not just when it's easy and it, and it brings obvious blessings, but even when it's hard uh, and it's going to cause pain to yourself. <laughs> I don't want to do this. Uh, if you're a parent, you understand this kind of struggle in disciplining your own kids. It's like, I don't, I don't take lots of joy in disciplining my kids, but I do it because I love them. Like, I've heard it said to me when I was growing up, like, this is harder for me than it's going to be for you. I'm like, I'm the one getting the spanking here. <laughs> I don't see how it's going to be any harder for you. <laughs> it seems pretty straightforward. But now as a father, I understand. And so likewise, uh, our obedience to God, sometimes it requires that kind of, this is gonna, it would be easier for me not to, uh, but because I desire to live a life that is honoring to you, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus' whole life could be summarized by that. And in coming and living that life, he's putting away the need for the, the annual reminder through sacrifices or in our illustration, the monthly reminder that we're still in debt by paying off the debt in full. If somebody were to come and pay the mortgage on my house, I would stop getting reminders that I owed a bank money for my house. <laughs> That's just how it would work. And when Jesus came, he came to provide not an incomplete, but a complete salvation. And so he takes away the, the first in order that he may establish the second. Uh, then he also applies to his audience, to his readers, uh, the application is that by that will, when Jesus did that, Jesus' life and life of obedience and death when that took place, we have been sanctified. Past tense, already all done. No more work to do in order to be sanctified, right? Uh, but it's interesting how he, he, he phrases this later because we'll, we'll, we'll contrast it here in a minute. He says, we have been sanctified by the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. Notice, once for all. Uh, it wasn't something that Jesus needed to do uh, every time we celebrate communion. It wasn't something that he needed to do once a year for us. It was just once. And it wasn't just for one person. It wasn't for himself. It was for all. That's what we have available to us as believers. This is the good news of the gospel. That's, that's the good news in particular. The debt that we owed has been paid. They were looking to the law in order to find a way 
to be pleasing to God when the law was pointing to Jesus, who had fully pleased God already. Jesus had the same conversation with some Pharisees who knew the scriptures really well, and they didn't get the point of the scriptures. They knew the law, but they, they didn't understand that the law was pointing them to Jesus. Jesus said this in John chapter 5, verse 39, You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, but these are they which speak of me. If you're reading your Bible right, you should be seeing that you're a sinner and that Jesus is the Savior, <laughs> not as an instruction manual on how to slightly improve your life now. In fact, if you're trying to use the Bible to make your life more comfortable now, then it's not a good book for that. <laughs> it's a book that's supposed to make your life more comfortable for later, <laughs> right? Jesus's obedience resulted in lots of discomfort. <laughs> in the same way, at times, our obedience to the Lord is going to result in discomfort for us. It's not a book that's meant to make you have your best life now. It's a book that's meant to give you eternal life starting now to enjoy forever. And the best is yet to come. And so he does this brief study in Psalm 40 for us in which he's telling us what the law could not do, Jesus has already done. He's already done the work for us. Verses 11 through 18, we're going to see that the one sacrifice of Jesus is what makes you acceptable or what makes you complete or what makes you perfect before the Lord. The one sacrifice of Jesus makes you perfect. Notice with me in verse 11, he's going to contrast the work of the priest with the work of Jesus. Verse 11, and every priest stand stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, speaking about Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God from that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. So notice the contrast here. Uh, again, beginning in verse 11 and 12, we're going to bounce back and forth between the priests and Jesus. So the priests are standing because the work is not finished. Jesus is sit sitting. He's resting because the work's all done. The priests, they're offering repeatedly the same sacrifices. Jesus offered one sacrifice. The priest, uh, their sacrifice can never take away sin. Jesus his sacrifice has perfectly and forever for those who uh, is perfect and lasts forever for those who are being sanctified. There are three words in uh, verse 14 that are also mentioned in verse 1 uh, where uh, there's a contrast. The contrast is offering and continual and forever uh, and perfected. And it's the same word for, for perfect. Remember when we were talking about how the law cannot make you perfect. He uses the same word here to describe what Jesus does as being able to make you perfect. Again, there in verse 14, he says, for by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Now, this is an interesting thought right here in verse 14 that kind of blows my mind, but it's, it's one of those realities of being in a relationship with a God who's eternal is he says he has made perfect. 
that's you know, complete. There's nothing left to do, us. And then he describes us as those who are being, present tense, sanctified. So we're currently being worked on even though we're already all done. <laughs> Sometimes in theology, that's called the already and not yet. From God's perspective, all the work is already done. From our perspective, especially in dealing with one another, if you live with other Christians, you know this to be true, God's not done with them yet. In fact, you may have a list in your mind of things that God's not done with yet <laughs> with regard to the people you live with who are also believers. And that is because we are being sanctified. What that means is that God is still working on us and in us and through us. We're not complete in the working out of our salvation, but we are complete in terms of completely being saved because those who are completely saved are still being worked on. Uh, if you think about it in terms of ownership, if there was a uh, there was a show on a long time ago called, I think it was, uh, I can't remember the name. It was, there was cars that they would just go out in the desert and find them. Like nobody owned them, nobody wanted them. They were just abandoned. And then they would take this car back to a shop. They would take ownership of that car and they would begin working on it until there was no more work to do. And it, they restored it back to its brand new condition, like showroom for quality, taken from something that nobody wanted to something that somebody would pay lots and lots of money for. And it didn't have value till they valued it. And it had no owner till they took ownership of it. In the same way, when we give our lives to the Lord, uh, we're as good as done as far as being restored. From his perspective, we're his now. That, that's no longer a question. The question is, what is he going to work on first? And typically, the process, if you've seen these shows, they don't just start adding things like paint right away. They typically break it down and then strip it down and then, you know, they start from you know the frame, and then they work their way up. They get rid of the rust, and they <laughs> they work their way until it's done. And uh, we're all in different parts. Uh, we're all from different parts of the desert, if you would, and in, in, in different places of disrepair. God's working on each one of us, and in the same way, uh, there's work in your life that He wants to do. And if He's doing that work, and He's revealing things to you that you didn't even know were there, then He's doing. That's the sanctification work. That means you're His. You shouldn't question your salvation. You should know that you're saved. You're like, oh, man, I never knew I was that way. And you're like, everybody else is like, yeah, well, you know, we, we, we've all known. But <laughs> now you know too. Praise the Lord. And the Lord's working on that. Praise the Lord for that too. But he's at work in those who he owns, who are his. And so we are being sanctified because the salvation we have is complete. Notice in uh, verses uh, 15 through 18, uh, he has an even shorter Bible study in uh, Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 33 through 34. Both of these verses that he's been doing a study in, he's actually mentioned two or three times since chapter 8. So if they sound familiar, that's because he's mentioned them before. Um, but he's going to bring up a, uh, one point that he wants to bring up, and it's showing the completeness of the sacrifice of Jesus. Uh, so follow with, along with me, verse 15. Uh, but the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us, for after he had said before, this is him quoting the verse he quoted before, so that phrase is kind of weird, but what he's doing, he's referring to the verse he's already quoted. He's going to quote it again now. Verse 16, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law into their hearts and their minds. I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. So catch what he's saying here. 
Uh, he's quoting again from uh, Jeremiah 31, verse 33 and 34, and he's saying that uh, Jesus' sacrifice is the new covenant uh, which God promised. So he, he's saying here, uh, the covenant which I will make with them. Remember when Jesus, before he went to the cross, he had his disciples, they were having a Passover meal, and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. That's what he was talking about. Jesus was referring to what Jeremiah was prophesying about. God was speaking through Jeremiah saying, I'm going to give you a new covenant, and it's going to be a better one, because the first one is you do, you do, you do, you do, and you'll be accepted. And the new covenant is I will do all of the work, <laughs> and you will be perfectly accepted. I'm going to give you not just a, a new law, I'm going to give you a new heart with the law already in it. I'm going to give you a new way of thinking where my law is written on the walls of your mind. And that's what he's saying here is Jesus is the one who is not only the uh, initiator of the covenant, but he's also the sacrifice in the covenant. And so the effect of which is that I will put, yeah, my law in your heart. Under the first covenant, there was continual reminders that we were sinners. Remember verse 3, the, the worshipers were continually reminded by continual offerings of sacrifice. And now the contrast between the worshipers who are reminded is even more importantly, God on purpose forgets. That's the contrast here. Whereas we may have been reminded continually, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner. If you've ever uh, tried something and failed repeatedly, uh, every time you have to start over again, it's, it's hard, you know? And it's just, I'm starting over again, I'm starting over again. And that's what that law system produced. This one is entirely different. Whereas the, before the worshipers were continually reminded, in this one, God is the one who is um, on purpose, intentionally forgetting the sins because he's replacing our file of our sins with Jesus's file and his sins. His file is much thinner. In fact, there's nothing in it. <laughs> Ours uh, might be a file cabinet. I don't know. <laughs> much thicker, a lot more, right? And so how God chooses to respond to us and relate himself to us in relationship to this new covenant that he's making is what he says there in verse 17. Their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. The sins that you can't forget, God has forgotten. He will remember them no more. The only one who will bring up our past sins in order to condemn us before the Lord is not the Lord. There's an accuser of the brethren. Uh, the devil will always remind you of your sins to make you want to flee from the Lord's presence. This is a huge thing that Paul addresses directly in Romans chapter 8, the very first three verses. Uh, he says in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Not because there isn't anything condemnable about our past. It's because Jesus has already borne that condemnation. He goes on to say, uh, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ has made me free 
from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. So what the law could not do because it was dependent on our obedience, Jesus did. He did all of the law perfectly, 100% of the time. And he did that in order that, like the author of Hebrews said, that in his death he could put to death death, which was the penalty of our sin, right? The wages of sin is death, separation from God forever. Jesus died to put that death to death. Death wasn't at the beginning of time, and death won't be at the end of time. There is a life and death of death. <laughs> death came into the world, and death died when Jesus put it to death. And it, that death that he died didn't just cover the deadness of our relationship with God, but it also impacts our relationship to one another. The sins of others against us and the sins of ourselves against others is also covered by that death. There is a ministry of reconciliation that is only available to believers. Because not only did God die for all of my sins, and my sins 100% paid for, but he also died for yours. <laughs> Which means we can have a relationship with one another in a way that nobody else can. Because for each of us who are in Christ Jesus, who walk according to the Spirit, again, Paul says, there is no condemnation. Because the one sacrifice of Jesus makes you perfect, complete, acceptable before the Lord. When he thinks about you, if you are in Christ Jesus, he's not conscious of any sin in your life. <laughs> That's how accepted we are before the Lord. The salvation he provides is 100% complete. So as we think about how that impacts our life. If you're a new believer, our relationship with God is based upon the completed work of Jesus. The salvation that God offers to us in Jesus is complete. Jesus sat down. All the work is done. You don't have to do anything to earn that grace. There's nothing you can do to add to it. Jonathan Edwards, uh, a pastor from back in the day, uh, said the only thing you contribute to your salvation, uh, sorry, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin which made it necessary. There's not anything we can do to make God love us more or love us less. If we're in Christ Jesus, we're fully accepted, completely loved. If you're a new believer, you should take note of the purpose of the law. Uh, the law in its purpose was to show sinners their sinfulness and to bring us to Jesus. So every time the law is doing that in your life, let that draw you closer to Jesus. Uh, one pastor once said that uh, if the devil is reminding you of your past, just remind him of his future. There, there will be a day when not only the penalty of sin is removed from our life, but the power and presence of sin will be removed too. If you're a more mature believer and you know all of these things to be true, you could have said it 
better, quicker. Uh, the question for, for you is, uh, you know this, but are you living like it's true? Have you returned to a list of to-dos as the basis of your good standing before God? Galatians 5 verse 4 tells us what such a person looks like from God's perspective. Perhaps you've heard the phrase, fallen from grace. That phrase comes from Galatians chapter 5 verse 4 where it says, You have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace. If you want to know how to fall from grace, approach God based on your own goodness. That's how you fall from grace. It's not by doing some significant sin in some drastic kind of way. It's by trying to approach God based on your own righteousness. By some law, by some to-do. The right response to this, and if you're a more mature believer, uh, don't let your heart be calloused to the, the wonderfulness of this truth. We ought to be praising God for a complete salvation. We ought to be continually entering into the rest of his completed work. If you're not a believer this morning, if you would describe yourself as a non-believer, there is no good work that you can do to be accepted. Don't try to clean up your life before you come. You can't. <laughs> and that's okay. God doesn't want you to clean up your life before you come. He accepts full wrecks. I can yes and amen that one myself. You don't have to, but I will. <laughs> There is no amount of good works you can do to be accepted. There's no rule you can follow. Jesus has done all the work to cover all your sins. What he requires is just your acknowledgement of that. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, you shall be saved. That confession, that just means saying the same thing that God says. Saying the same thing about the sin in your life that, hey, that's sin saying the same thing about Jesus in his life, hey, he was perfect and he died for my sins. Not only acknowledging those things, but allowing him to take possession of you so that he can do his work in you and through you.